evidence and answers. The design argument remains one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God. However, atheists have their counter-arguments, such as the multiverse, or that humans naturally impose design on structures we see in nature, and things in nature occur naturally, but have the appearance of design. Do these arguments refute the design argument? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat and his guest, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, began a fascinating interview regarding the argument for intelligent design. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up Designed to the Core. You can download it or listen online. Now, let's conclude this informative interview. How do we answer that, that there seems to be flaws in the design? Well, those flaws are inevitable if you've got the laws of physics, which raises another point. Does God have different reasons for making the laws of physics the way he did? And the answer is yes. Those laws of physics not only permit our existence, they're tools in God's hands to rapidly and efficiently bring about the end of all evil and suffering. So yeah, I, we could create a universe where life is possible, where there are no meteors or comets colliding with the Earth. But that would be different laws of physics. And therefore, we wouldn't be able to have the efficient and rapid eradication of evil and suffering that we do in this universe, while our human free will to experience and express love is being enhanced. But in that context, we look at the meteors, asteroids, and comets, and you'll see a chapter in the book where I talk about this saying, we are getting the optimal delivery of comets and asteroids to planet Earth. We'd be in trouble if we didn't get any at all, because the Earth loses a tiny amount of water to interplanetary space. It's tiny, but a planet would eventually be desiccated, where there'd be no water left. But the water we lose is replaced by the water we gain from comets. Hmm. Comets are 85% frozen water. And uh, we get about 10,000 comets colliding with the Earth per day. Now, the vast majority are really tiny, so they don't even make it to the surface of the Earth, but they deliver water to our atmosphere. And it counterbalances perfectly the water we lose. We'd be in trouble if we got too much water from the comets, because too much water is a problem for life, just as too little water is a problem for life we get exactly the right delivery quantity. And you say, well, what about the asteroids? Well, you don't want asteroids bombarding the Earth every day. That would make it difficult to uh, you know, have advanced civilization. But we do need a few asteroids colliding with the Earth. So, for example, 80% of the gold and platinum that's in circulation today comes from an asteroid that collided in South Africa hundreds of millions of years ago. And likewise, 50% of the nickel in circulation comes from an asteroid that collided on the north shore of Lake Huron hundreds of millions of years ago. And so the delivery we get from these very heavy metal-rich asteroids is exactly what we need to have our high-technology civilization thrive. But notice, these collision events were timed perfectly. Mm. They occurred at a time when it wasn't going to be a problem for advanced life and also occurred at a time 
where that treasure chest of platinum, gold, and nickel, and other heavy elements wouldn't be completely eroded away or chemically degraded. The timing was perfect. The locations were perfect. And it's just exactly what we need to sustain our civilization. And we get that just right delivery because of where the moon is and the size and gravity uh, potential of the moon actually funnels in preferentially the valuable asteroids and scatters away the less valuable asteroids. Amazing. Yes, it is. And, folks, there was a lot there. And if you want to listen to it again, you'll probably have to listen to it several times. Several of Hugh's answers here. You can go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org or Reasons to Believe website and hear this interview and other interviews Hugh has done on these topics. You know, Hugh, one of the chapters that caught my attention, because it's, I think it's a Hawaiian word, the Laniakea Supercluster. Right. And tell us a little bit about that. That's a fascinating one. Well, it's a brand new design argument because a few years ago, astronomers had no way of defining a super galaxy cluster. It's a cluster of clusters of galaxies. And only recently we've been able to determine the boundaries and the structure of these super clusters of galaxies. And the vast majority resemble the Shapley super galaxy cluster. That's one of the nearby super galaxy clusters. And it's loaded with these really big clusters of galaxies where the clusters of galaxies are jammed tightly together. It kind of looks like a huge football of these uh, super galaxy clusters. But that means that the galaxies are so close together that you wind up uh, producing huge supermassive black holes in the bigger galaxies, which radiate deadly radiation. And with galaxies that close together, they're going to be gravitationally disturbing one another. The unique feature of the Lanakaya supergalaxy cluster is that the galaxy clusters are smaller. There's only three big ones, and the three big ones are all off to the far right side of the supergalaxy cluster. So it's not isotropic like the other supergalaxy clusters. And then you have the groupings of galaxies, the groups of galaxies strung out along these long filaments. And our local group is at the nexus of three subfilaments. You don't want to be in a void, because if you're in a void, there won't be enough tiny dwarf galaxies to sustain the spiral structure of the galaxy in which you live. If you're at the nexus of three subfilaments, there will be an adequate population of those tiny dwarf galaxies. But if you're at three subfilaments rather than along a main filament, that means there'll be no nearby big galaxies that are going to pose a problem for both radiation and gravitational disturbance. We live at the one location in the Atlantic High supergalaxy cluster in which advanced life is possible, but we also live in the only supergalaxy cluster that has any possibility of sustaining advanced life. Oh, now we're moving closer. Let's talk about our solar system here. You've got a few chapters on our planetary solar system. How does that point to intelligent design? Well, there's a brand new discovery that I put into the book. It just made it into, into the book because it's so recently published. And it's a paper that addresses the problem of the early sun. Stars are like human beings. They're unstable when they're young. They're unstable when they're old. They're maximally stable when they're middle age. But in the case of stars, when they're young, they're hundreds of thousands of times more unstable. So, for example, in the first half billion years of our sun's existence, 
It was pouring up particle radiation, gamma ray and X-ray radiation, and flaring activity. That's 100,000 times greater than what the sun is exhibiting today. And normally, that radiation would evaporate all of Earth's water and all of Earth's atmosphere, and there'd be no possibility for life on our planet. But what astronomers have discovered is that our solar system began with five rocky planets. We had Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and the planet Theia. But Theia and the proto-Earth, early in the solar system's history, collided, making the Earth a bigger planet. But a debris cloud formed around the proto-Earth that coalesced and made the moon. But because of this collision event, the early moon and the early Earth both had a hot core a core so hot that it caused iron to sink towards the core and that iron was liquid. So both bodies early on had a liquid iron core. And the moon at that time was quite close to the Earth, so close to the Earth that the gravity of the moon on the near side of the Earth was stronger than the gravity of the moon on the far side. And that differential gravity circulated the liquid iron in the interior verse core. Likewise, Earth's gravity exerted on the moon circulated the liquid iron in the core of the moon, causing both bodies to have a magnetosphere. And because of how close the bodies were together, the two magnetospheres coupled. And what this paper pointed out, only if you got a coupled magnetosphere from a body that began as hot as the moon and as hot as the Earth, with the huge abundance of iron and nickel in it that the Earth and moon had, would you get a coupled magnetosphere that would be strong enough to protect that planet from having all of its water and all of its atmosphere eroded away, sputtered away to interplanetary space? And the authors that wrote this paper concluded by saying, we think this is a new habitability requirement, a modest statement, because what they're really demonstrating, the only way you can have life on a planet is if you've got two rocky planets colliding with one another where they begin with the just right mass and the just right distance from their host stars, where you get a big moon forming, where both the moon and the planet have a hot liquid iron core, where the two bodies are close enough together that they circulate each other's liquid iron core, forming a magnetosphere around both bodies that couples. If all of that is not present, there's no possibility for life on the planet. And so, as I mentioned in Design to the Core, in the context of the past 10 years of scientific discovery, this is the most spectacular new evidence we've found for fine-tuned design. And it basically it rules out any possibility of there being another body anywhere in the universe without supernatural intervention that would have the possibility of sustaining advanced life. From my perspective, this is the most potent new scientific discovery that proves that God designed our universe, and all of its components, so that we humans can exist and fulfill the purposes for which God created us. That's fascinating. Now, there's some people sitting out there saying, well, Hugh, if the evidence is so compelling, then why is it still that the majority of the scientific world deny the existence of an intelligent creator? Well, part of it is that they don't all know this stuff. I mean, it's like there's so many evolutionary biologists and paleontologists I've met, they think that the history of life is completely explained in their disciplines. Mm -hmm. And I point out to them, well, you've ignored 
solar astrophysics. And they say, what's that got to do with the history of life? I say, everything, because you've been presuming that the sun's luminosity doesn't change throughout the history of life on planet Earth. And we astronomers know it changes very significantly. And only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun would know which life to have on planet Earth at what abundance level, at what diversity, and what time. And uh, your naturalistic models are not adequate to explain that, but a theistic Christian model is fully adequate to explain. And it's actually described in Psalm 104 how it's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. That's exactly what you need to do to perfectly compensate for the changing luminosity of the sun. So that's part of the reason is that scientists, because of the competition we face in research science today, they are forced to specialize. And these questions require interdisciplinary treatment. But I think probably a more significant reason, we're told in the Bible that we human beings are fraught with pride. We want to be autonomous. We want to run life as we see fit. We don't want to submit ourselves to a higher power. And it was Jesus of Nazareth who said, the majority will choose to go their own way. A minority, and he mentioned it would be a significant minority, will say, no, what's best for me is to put my life in charge of the one that knows me better than I know myself and understands my problem with trying to deal with my moral imperfection. He's the one I need to trust. But that implies that you're only going to have a majority of scientists who will face up to the evidence and say, yes, this is the handiwork of God. A majority are going to exercise what you see in Romans 1, self-imposed ignorance. They'll choose to ignore what they know, because by facing up to it, they have to recognize there's a God out there that's evaluating my life and intends uh, to judge me uh, for what I say, do, and think. Well, Hugh, you talked a lot about the design argument here and the design we see in the universe in quite some detail, and that's been great. And what does the evidence of design reveal about the character of God? Well, to me what it reveals is that he is intent on designing the universe, our planet, and us human beings in such a way that we can have a strong free will I mean, God could have made us obedient to him by giving us a weak free will. But with a weak free will, you get weak love. God mm. wanted strong love. And so he purposely designed the universe, and he gave us human beings strong free will. But his goal is that a large minority of us human beings would exercise our strong free will and say, we look at this cosmos, and what we recognize, the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we see for the supernatural handiwork of God. And I want to add that no, at no other time in human history has the growth of evidence been as dramatic as it is today. I mean, it's such, for example, when I speak to university audiences, I tell them, if you're not convinced today, wait one month, because in a single month, the evidence will become exponentially greater than it is today. I've documented in several of my books that case from fine-tuning gets about a thousand times stronger with every month that goes by. So it's not the lack of evidence. It's really our human free will. But as we submit to our Creator, 
and give him control over our life because after all, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He's far more loving than we are. It only makes rational sense to do that. And we do that, he prepares us for life in the new creation. Mm. Christianity is unique in that it's a two-creation model. God creates the universe as a tool to eradicate evil and suffering and actually enhance human free will capability. The new creation is where there will be no evil and suffering, and God's going to give it different laws of physics, different dimensions, and it's a place where we're going to be able to enjoy fellowship and love with God, with the angels, with one another, to a degree that's simply unimaginable in this present creation. That's where God is taking us, and he designed the universe, not only provide a home for us where we can thrive, but be prepared for our new roles in the new creation. Yeah, it's Hugh. Now, this is a great book, and what do you hope people gain by reading this book, Designed to the Core? Well, I hope that they gain the idea that design is ubiquitous, it is pervasive, and it's in the context of redemption. So I'm basically laying out what I call a redemptive creation model. It tells us in the Bible that God began his works of redemption before he created anything at all, which implies that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. And so what I've laid out and designed to the core is how we can scientifically demonstrate that that indeed is the case how everything that God has created on every cosmic size scale is for the purpose of making possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. So the design argument just doesn't simply reveal that there's a God. It reveals that it's the God of the Bible, the God that is intent on redeeming billions of human beings from their sin and evil. Hugh, with the compelling evidence that's out there, and you talk about how the evidence continues to increase. Are you finding a more openness in the arena of science, especially on the university campuses, or are you finding more hostility on the university campus and in the scientific arena? No, I'm finding the former, not the latter. In fact, just this weekend, I was having a dinner with a couple of Caltech astronomers who are not believers, and it's like they were fascinated by this stuff. But I just mailed them a copy of my book this morning, and I'm asking for their feedback because I think it's going to reveal to them things that they're fascinated about, but also things that they really haven't understood, and nor have they thought about the implications philosophically and theologically. So I'm seeing an openness like I've never seen before, and I'm really optimistic as to how this design argument can bring a whole new generation of human beings to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, that's encouraging to hear. Hugh, for students going into the arena of science, you know, what words of wisdom can you give, since many will be taught science from a naturalistic worldview perspective? Well, I would say look at uh, Psalm 19, look at Romans 1. Psalm 19 tells us that God has revealed himself in an utterly trustworthy and reliable way through two books, the book of Scripture and the book of Nature. And so there's an exhortation there that if you're a believer, you need to be a theologian. Don't leave it up to your pastors and seminary professors to study the book of Scripture. We all need to be studying the book of Scripture, and it's way too much fun. So don't leave it up to the professionals. We're all to be involved. We're all to enjoy what we discover. 
But likewise, there's an exhortation in Psalm 19 that we're all to be scientists. So I tell people I meet, don't leave it up to professionals like myself to be studying the book of nature. We're all to be studying the book of nature. And it's way too much fun. (laughs) Don't just leave it up to the scientists. We all need to be involved in studying both the book of nature and the book of scripture. And the more we study it, the more we're going to experience the love and the power Mm -hmm. of the Creator. Yeah, and finally, Hugh, you know, what about the pastors and parents? Some see their students or their children going into the arena of science and seeming to go farther away from the church or the biblical teaching they grew up with. What advice can you be giving to pastors and parents who might be sitting out there saying, man, I don't have a science degree. How am I going to engage in this arena? Well, I mean, again, we all need to be involved in science. We all need to be involved in sharing our faith. I mean, we see in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give good reasons for your faith and hope in Christ with gentleness and respect. And we're not talking about good reasons for your faith in God. We're talking about the good reasons that the unbelievers you're encountering are going to need, which means we all need to be involved and engaging unbelievers uh, with these good reasons and building and developing the good reasons that they need. So I tell parents, you know, uh, maybe you're better off sending your children to a secular university rather than a Christian university, because at a secular university, they will be exposed to unbelievers, fellow students and professors who are not believers. This will give them the opportunity to practice 1 Peter 3.15. Moreover, you're more likely to be around fellow believers who are engaged in sharing their faith, and they're the ones that are going to actually build up Uh, your faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's a mission field out there, and God has called us to be missionaries. So go to the mission field, have some fun, watch God do miracles. I mean, I tell people, 1 Peter 3.15 is a promise. If you will develop good reasons for your faith and hope in Jesus Christ and are able to deliver them with gentleness and respect, you will see God supernaturally bringing people to you that in advance he is prepared to hear and respond to your good reasons. And as a pastor, I think every Christian needs to have those experiences on a regular basis. There's nothing like seeing God personally working miracles in your life to build your faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, and to equip you to engage the culture and your arena for Christ, there's some great uh, websites out there. One of them is reasons.org. So tell us about your ministry, Hugh. Yes, well, uh, we founded the ministry 37 years ago, basically to take what God is revealing through the book of nature, to bring people to the book of Scripture, and into relationship with Jesus Christ. And referring to 1 Peter 3.15, I've written a book called Always Be Ready. And it's basically filled with stories that show you that if you do prepare good reasons and can deliver those reasons with gentleness and respect, you'll see miracles just like you see in the book of Acts. And I document uh, literally hundreds of them uh, in that book. And my goal as a scientist and a pastor is that every Christian would have those experiences on a regular basis. And reasons to believe, our goal is to provide you with those good reasons. People say, well, I, haven't, I don't have prepared good reasons. Well, we've spent more than three decades preparing good reasons for you. Reasons.org. Uh, That's where you can go for those. And, hey, we're also available to answer your questions. If you run into some atheist skeptic, 
that's uh, throwing out challenging questions to you need help on, we're here to back you up. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Hugh Ross, the author of his new book here, Design to the Core, and former president and founder of Reasons to Believe. Great resource there, reasons.org. We've had their speakers on our radio show. We've had them here in Hawaii, and we look forward to having them here live in Hawaii in the near future. So, Dr. Ross, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed this exciting show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners, for the opportunity to partner with us head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrow.